Amen. Well, I've got a bit of an eerie feeling this morning. Um, in our Sunday school class this morning, we're, we're going through the book of Ephesians. We end, we're, we just finished the book of Ephesians today. We're talking about the armor of God and being ready for this spiritual war that uh, is taking place within our lives today. Um, in our at-home Bible study or Acts Church, okay, be honest. Is Acts Church, is that cheesy or no? Yes or no? Che- cheesy? Okay, uh, Jacob says cheesy, so <laughs> at, at home Bible study or, or Acts Church, uh, we're, we're going through the book Winning the War in Your Mind, and the topic is all about there is a war going on in our minds today, and we need to be prepared for that, we, uh, and throughout this book, we're talking about the tools that we have through God, through the scriptures, to come out victorious in this spiritual, mental war that we are going through. And then today, uh, and kind of started a bit uh, last week as well, we are dealing with the topic of this spiritual war going on in our minds. And I uh, have no uh, say on what Jacob teaches in his Sunday school class. I did not intend to connect uh, the winning the war in your mind material with uh, the series on Romans. For I, I, it was based off the survey. You guys all wanted uh, to go through the book Winning the War in Your Mind. That's why we determined that. And yet, going through all three uh, of these different studies, classes, sermons, and they're all talking about the same topic. And so that gives me a bit of an eerie feeling as I feel God is trying to say something. I don't know if he's trying to tell me something personally. I don't know if he is trying to tell Brian something, Jacob something. I don't know if he is trying to tell a group of us something. I don't know if he is trying to tell the church something. But I want to open with a word of prayer that God opens our eyes, our mind, our hearts, and our ears to whatever he is trying to tell us. Because I believe God is trying to tell us something or an individual something or a group of us something specifically as all of these dots are connected. Uh, Some may leave it to coincidence, but I believe God is active in this world today. And and I think God is trying to tell us something. So if you all will go ahead and we'll bow in prayer asking for God to help us out. Father, we love you. Father, we thank you for this day that you've made. Father, I just thank you for the opportunities that we have in our Wednesday night group, our Sunday school group, our time together going through the book of Romans. Father, I just thank you for the material, the scripture, the word that you provide for us. Father, it's my prayer this morning that I speak your words, I serve as your mouthpiece, your prophet this morning, Father. I just pray that you... Open our eyes, our mind, our ears, our heart to whatever you are trying to tell us. Father, I pray that you be as obvious as can be. So, Father, we love you. We thank you for this opportunity that we have. It's in Christ's precious and holy name that we pray. Amen. Alrighty. Well, we are, we are going to jump right into it today. Uh, we're, we're continuing our series on the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to uh, Romans chapter 8. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. 
Romans, we're, we're picking up in chapter 8, verse 1 today. Uh, we're continuing this series. Uh, we, we took a break for a few weeks over uh, the Resurrection Sunday season. Um, and last week we resumed it and we saw last week how we are freed from the law, this law that was originally a good thing for God's chosen people. So it's from God, a, a holy divine being, to God's chosen people, and it was for their own good. And so here we have this law, this good thing, but sin corrupted the law, this very precious thing that we have. And that's how devastating sin is, that, that it can take something pure and holy and good like the law, and it can corrupt it, and it can lead to sin and death. And sin not only corrupts the law, but sin we saw last week corrupts us as well. And Paul, in our passage last week, he shared a personal testimony, the latter half of chapter 7, and how he has this internal struggle. He describes it as a war being waged, where he has these intentions, these hopes, these desires to do good and to stay away from bad. But yet, on occasion, he finds himself staying away from the good and doing the bad. And again, he describes this as a war that is waging in his mind, fits so perfectly with our at-home series and our Sunday school class this morning as well. And so pretty much all we did last week in our message was bring awareness to the fact that, hey, we have an issue. It wasn't the most fun message to go through as that was the sole focus of Paul in chapter 7 is bringing light to this fact that we have an issue. I told you all, if you were here last week, you got to come back again this week as we're going to discuss the solution. So pat yourself on the back. You made it. You made it here for the solution that we get to talk about today. So before we pick up in chapter 8, we have, to do, we have to define two important words in this section that will help us understand what Paul is saying to us or to the church at Rome that we can then apply to our lives. And these are two words that Paul uses over and over again in this chapter. And these two words are the flesh and spirit. So we have referenced uh, th this word flesh a couple of times already throughout our series, as this word flesh occurs 23 times throughout the letter of Romans. That is more than any other New Testament book. And so 23 times does it occur in the 16 chapters of Romans, but 13 times it occurs in chapter 8 alone. And so this is a heavy emphasis of Paul's in chapter 8. And this word flesh uh, that we have translated in the English language in chapter 8 comes from uh, the original Greek word that Paul wrote, sarx. Paul uses this word flesh or the original word sarx in three different ways throughout his letter. The first way that he uses this word flesh is to use it in a more literal sense in talking about our skin, and he uses it in talking about being circumcised in the flesh. And, and so that's, that's how we use uh, this term flesh a lot in our society, talking about our, our actual bodies, our actual skin. And, and Paul used that word flesh to describe being circumcised in the flesh, an emphasis earlier in, in like chapter, around chapters 2 and 3. And then Paul uses this word flesh to talk about looking at things from the human point of view. Paul uh, talks about Jesus being the son of David according to the flesh. 
If you look through Jesus' lineage in the book of Matthew and in the book of Luke, you will see that Jesus literally descends from the offspring of David. David would have been his great, 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 you name it, grand, uh, grandfather. And so according to the flesh and our human perspective, biology, Jesus was the son of David according to the flesh. And so that's the second way that Paul uses this word flesh. A third way that Paul uses this word flesh is to talk about our lives before becoming Christians when we live according to our sinful human nature. And this is how Paul uses this word flesh in chapter 8, referring to our sinful nature as human beings, as our lives were ruled by this sinful nature before becoming Christians, Christ followers. And so when we read uh, flesh here 13 times in chapter 8, that's the setting. That, that's uh, what, what Paul is meaning when he uses this word flesh to talk about our sinful human nature that we had. Especially before we became Christians, we were ruled by that sinful human nature. And then the second word that we had to define that Paul uses all the time in chapter 8 is spirit. The word spirit occurs 34 times in the letter of Romans, and it occurs 21 times in chapter 8 alone. That is a lot. That's about two-thirds of this word spirit in the 16 chapters. About two-thirds takes place in chapter 8 alone. So, so not only flesh is a major concept of chapter 8, but the spirit is a major concept of Paul's writing here in chapter 8. And the Greek word for spirit here is pneuma, or some pronounce it pneuma. This word spirit occurs more than 600 times throughout uh, the scriptures, the Hebrew ruach, uh, ruach, uh, and the Greek pneuma, pneuma. And it's used in a handful of different ways throughout the scripture. The spirit can refer to the wind. It can refer to the breath of God and filling us with the breath of life. It can refer to who we are, our, our character. It can refer to the spirit of God as well, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is how God interacts with the world today. Uh, it's his, uh, I like to describe the Holy Spirit as God's personal uh, power and presence among us today. So it's how he interacts with you and I in 2023. And when Paul uses the word spirit in chapter 8 here, he is referring to the spirit of God that empowers us. He's referring to being filled with the Holy Spirit. And now the Holy Spirit is a difficult concept to understand. There, there aren't a, a ton of black and white statements about the Holy Spirit in the scriptures. Uh, one big question that I have about the Holy Spirit that I wish there was more clarity on in the scriptures is when we are filled, when we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's two passages in the New Testament that, that allude to or, or talk about the receiving of the Spirit. And to me, these are the clearest answers that we have as far as when we receive this Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, it reads, And Peter said to them, this is after uh, the, the, uh, the, the day of Pentecost, and, and all these people gathered together, and Peter delivered uh, a smashing sermon. And Peter said to them, they were cut to the heart, and they said, Peter, how shall we respond to this message that you preached? And Peter said to them in Acts 2, 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, and the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And 
you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then the other passage uh, that I could find in the New Testament that talks about receiving the Spirit, in Galatians 3, 2, Paul writes, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, Paul is trying to say that, that we receive the Spirit by the hearing with our faith. Or it's not by works of the law that we receive the Spirit, but it's by hearing with faith. And so Peter equates the receival of the Spirit with repentance and baptism. And then Paul equates the receival of the Spirit with hearing by hearing with faith. And so it appears to me that we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit when we have a living and active faith. A faith that compels us to repent of our sins. The sort of faith that compels us to be baptized. I think that's when God fills us with his precious spirit. And so with that said, with, with, with better understanding on what this word flesh means and what this word spirit means, we pick up in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Paul writes, There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirits of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son and the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so chapter seven ends uh, in verse 25 says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself, this is Paul speaking, I myself serve the law of God with my, with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. And now we have to remember that the original writing, Paul's original letter to uh, the church at Rome, it didn't have these chapter breaks. It didn't have these verse breaks. Uh, it would have flowed like a letter or a book that we would read today. And so Paul, uh, after in, in chapter 7, at the end there, he says, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law. That's an issue. But Paul, all of a sudden, without skipping a beat, he states, there is therefore... Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Wow. All of a sudden, talking about Paul serving uh, the, the law of sin with his flesh, but without skipping a beat, w w without any other really introduction to, to this topic, he says, there's, there, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so Paul then continues to explain this process as to how we are no longer condemned for those who are in Christ Jesus. He starts verse 2 uh, with four. Anytime that the word for uh, is at the beginning of a sentence or, or serves as a conjunction, it basically uh, serves uh, to explain what the writer said before. You can essentially read because. So in verse 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Why is there no condemnation? For or because the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And so we don't receive condemnation now for those of us who belong to Christ Jesus because the spirit 
God's spirit has set us free from the law of sin and death. You know, if one falls short of completely fulfilling the law that that God established with the Israelites in the Old Testament, they committed sin. The law, as Paul talked about previously in his letter, the law brought awareness to sin. And we learn that the wages of sin in 6.23 for the wages of sin is death. And so through this law, we, we, we have awareness of the sin that we commit, and that, br- that brings an awareness that we deserve death. That, that is what we deserve through this law. But through the Spirit, we are freed from the sin and death that are associated with the God-given law to his people in the Old Testament. That, that, that is a phenomenal process. How is that so? How are we freed from the law the law of sin and death through the spirit. Well, Paul explains that in verse three, he says for, or because God has done with the law, we can by the flesh could not do by sending his own son and the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And so how are we freed from the sin and death of the law of sin and death? Well, it's because God sent his son, Jesus, to condemn sin. Through the cross, sin loses its power and dominion over us. We are no longer enslaved to sin. God enacts his judgment upon sin through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And this is something that the law although it was a very good thing from a holy and divine being, almighty God, and it was given to his chosen people for their good. So even though this law was a good thing, it was not capable of doing that. It was not capable of freeing them from the law of sin and death. Only through Christ Jesus could we be freed from the law of sin and death. And so because sin loses its power and dominion over us, As Paul writes in verse 4, we are actually able to righteously fulfill this law that we are freed from. That's that's a a pretty crazy cycle going on here just in the first four verses here that this law brings us sin and death because we aren't able to uh, completely fulfill it to a T. And then we discover that we are freed from this law and we discover that we are freed from this law because of Christ Jesus. And then we learn that actually through Christ Jesus, we are able to quote in verse four in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. It's a crazy, cool cycle taking place here within these first four verses. Essentially, what Paul is saying here is that we have no condemnation as Christians because God sent Jesus to free us from this nasty grip, this nasty power that sin has over us. But God enacted his judgment on this sin through the death of Jesus. And so we are united with Jesus in his death. And that means that we are involved then with Jesus' perfection as well, who perfectly obeyed God. And so Paul continues in verse five, and he says, for, or because those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. 
For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. And so here Paul is describing two different kinds of lives. There are those who live by the flesh and those who live by the spirit, which is a lot easier for us to understand once we uh, understand what flesh, that sinful human nature means, and the spirit being empowered, being filled with God's precious spirit. So there's those who live by the flesh, their, their sinful natures and desires, and these people, they set their mind, their, their mind on the things of the flesh. What are these things? They're things like wealth, uh, sex, power, greed, you name it. These are the things that people who live by the flesh, these are the things that they set their minds on uh, uh, consistently. On the other hand, the other group of people that Paul describes here, those who live by the spirit, those who are filled with God's empowering spirit, set their minds on the things of the spirit. What are these things? These are things uh, revolving God and his character and his love for us, uh, regarding God's Messiah, Christ Jesus, and the sacrifice, regarding the coming kingdom, re regarding the Holy Spirit that empowers us. Uh, and you can go on with, with the things of the mind, uh, uh, the mind on the things of the spirit. So Paul continues there uh, and talking about the flesh here in verses 7 through 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So if you set your mind on the things of the flesh, it is impossible to please God. Not that it's very, 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 very hard to please God, but it's impossible. It cannot be done. If you live by the flesh, it is impossible to please God. And not only is it impossible to please God, but Paul kind of takes it a step further. He says, your mind is hostile to God. You are an enemy of God if you live according to the flesh, if you live according to your sinful nature. That is a position that I do not want to find myself in. You may make some enemies along your path as a Christian, um, but, but these enemies, they have finite power. They have finite knowledge about us. They are finite in every sense. But God, on the other hand, is infinite in every sense. He has infinite knowledge, infinite power, infinite authority over us. And that is a being that I do not want to be an enemy of. I will be the enemy of the whole entire world before I would ever dare want to be the enemy of God. But when we are led by the things of the flesh, when, when, when we are, are thinking our mind of the things of the flesh, it's impossible to please God and we are an enemy of God. A position that I'm sure none of us want to be in this morning. And then in verse 9, uh, Paul kind of building up to this at, at this point. In verse 9, he says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, listen to this, that same spirit dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies 
through his spirit who dwells in you. And so Paul here, he's writing to the church at Rome, people who have a living faith in God and his Messiah, Jesus. And according to Paul, these people, this church, they have a faith in God and Jesus, and they have the spirit living within them. This church is empowered by God's Holy Spirit, God's personal power and presence among us. And that right there in verse 9, that is the solution. That is a solution to our problem brought up in, in chapter 7. This is what Paul has been building up to this point. That we have this issue where, where in our mind we want to do good and we want to stay away from bad. But, but our sinful human nature, uh, it comes and, and it causes us to do the bad things that we don't want to do. And it causes us to stay away from the good things that we want to do. And we have this internal war going on in our mind. The solution is verse 9. The solution is that you are not in the flesh, but you are in the spirit. The same exact spirit that raised Jesus victoriously from the grave is living in you. Hallelujah. Praise God. Can I get an amen, church? Amen. amen. You have immense power. And you have immense potential with the spirit, God's precious spirit living within you. You are no ordinary human being. You are far different, far different from those who don't have a living faith in God. For they don't have a spirit living within them, the same spirit that raised uh, Jesus from the dead. They don't have that, but you have that. You are no longer in the flesh, but you are in the spirit. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And so to many Christians, uh, for, from my uh, experience and what we see today in the church in America, are living as if they don't have the special power living within them. And that breaks my heart. If they are acting like they don't have the spirit, we have to raise up questions about their faith, whether their faith is alive and well. And if their faith is alive and well, I believe that means they don't have the spirit living within them. The spirit is all important. A lot of times in the church of God, the group of churches uh, that we belong to or that we are affiliated with, uh, sometimes we can stay away uh, from the Holy Spirit. I think uh, for one, as we alluded to earlier this morning, there's not a lot of black and white statements about the Spirit in the Scriptures. We had to do a lot of digging, a lot of studying, and a lot of inferring of what these authors are writing about the Spirit. Another thing I think why uh, the church God uniquely uh, stays away from the Holy Spirit uh, too much is that we're afraid to make it out uh, to be a, uh, another person of God. For, for we strictly believe in the oneness of God, but the Holy Spirit is, is it's the personal power and it's the personal presence of God. Not, 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 not necessarily a separate entity or a, a separate person, but it, but it is God himself. It's God interacting with you and I today. And so we have to acknowledge the immense privilege and honor and power that we have as Christians 
as we have God's Spirit living within us. If you have a faith in God and Jesus, and people can look at your life and they can see that, yes, indeed, you have a living and active faith, in, then you have God's Spirit living within you as we speak. I pray your eyes are open to that. Paul continues in verse 12 of chapter 8. He says, so then, brothers, so then that now, that now that we understand that we are filled with God's spirit, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so Paul says this end result of living and the flesh living in our sinful desires, it leads to death an everlasting death with no hope of life. But now you and I, uh, we, we still live in a cursed and a stained world uh, that was tainted by sin. And because we do, we will experience uh, death unless Jesus comes back uh, before then, which I'm, I would have no issues uh, with. Uh, but if not, we, we will experience death as human beings as we live in this broken and cursed world that was tainted by sin. However, we die only to be raised to immortality when Christ Jesus returns to earth. We, we are not dead forever, but we are dead just for a short time compared to all of eternity. For, for a very short time, we may die, but we will be raised to everlasting life. We will be raised to life if we live by the Spirit. And so verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you, you all have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself, or you can read itself, looking at the uh, Greek grammar, the spirit himself or itself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is good. So Paul says that if you have a living faith in, in God and Jesus, then God fills you with his spirit. If you have a life that is empowered and in cohesion with the spirit, then Paul says you are a child of God. And that's something that we have to refine as a church. I think sometimes we can get a little loosey-goosey uh, with this term child of God. Uh, th this privilege of being a child of God is not a, a birth-given right. It's not a birth-given privilege. Every human being is not a child of God. Every human being is a creation of God. Every human being is created in the image of God. And so that gives them tremendous value. Everybody here on earth has tremendous value because they were made in the image of the almighty creator of the heavens and the earth. But I, but I don't think it, it fits with Paul's theology thinking that everybody is a child of God. It appears that this immense privilege, this immense blessing of being a child of God is reserved for those who have God's spirit living within them. And if we do have God's spirit living within, we, we are an adopted child of God. The Roman empire that Paul and his audience were living in made adoption a very, very serious conundrum. 
Uh, that's because a Roman son, uh, I, I just learned this uh, this past week, a Roman son never came of age to be independent of his father. So no matter how old a Roman son was, he was still under the authority, the possession of his father as long as his father was alive. And in the adoption, the, that person submits themselves to their adopted father for the rest of their life. And so here to, today in the States, adoption is a huge deal. But after the age of 18, uh, uh, legally, we are no longer under the authority of our parents. But that was not the case of the Roman Empire. They were under their authority, under their possession, under their control, as long as their father had breath in their lungs. And so there were serious repercussions of adoption uh, in the Roman Empire. Uh, William Barclay, uh, someone we, we uh, quoted a handful of times throughout this series, he writes in his commentary, uh, and talking about the effects, the repercussions of adoption. He says, number one, the adopted person lost all rights in his old family and gained all the rights of a legitimate son in his new family. In the most binding legal way, he got a new father. Number two, it followed that he became heir to his new, to his new father's estates. Even if other sons were born afterwards, it did not affect his rights. He was co-heir with them, and no one could deny him that right. Number three, in law, the old life of the adopted person was completely wiped out. For instance, all debts were canceled. He was regarded as a new person entering into a new life in which the past had no part. And then number four, in the eyes of the law, he was absolutely the son of his new father. And so when we understand adoption as children of God in this uh, cultural setting in which Paul wrote this letter and, and which uh, his audience lived in this same society as well, it brings all the more power and significance to the idea that we are adopted children of God. We lose all of our rights of our old family. We lose all of our rights of our former association with living within the flesh. We lose all of that. We, we take zero of that with us, with our new adopted family, being an adopted child of God. On top of that, we become an heir to God's estate. What's God's estate? It's his kingdom here on earth. His estate where everything wrong with this world will be made right. And you and I, we are heirs of that estate. We are partakers of that estate. That is ours. That is our land that, that, that our Heavenly Father has blessed us with. And we are co-heirs with all of God's original children. That means, as Paul stated, we are co-heirs with Jesus himself. As Jesus is an heir of God's land. And we are going to take possession of this land with Christ Jesus himself. How cool is that? On top of that, our old lives before adoption of God's children are wiped out. All of our debts that we have before becoming children of God, they are wiped out. They are canceled. And that includes the debt that we owe 
for the wages of our sin, which is death. When you become an adopted child of God, that debt is canceled. You are free from that debt. Amen is right. We are 100% the new children of God. And nobody can take that privilege away from us. The only person who can take that privilege away from us is us, is ourselves. But nobody else, no other thing, can take that privilege of entering into the family of God as his beloved child. That is a blessing that is reserved for you, that is reserved for the people who have the spirit living within them. And so this is it. This is it. In chapter 8, the, the solution to the issue that we brought up in, in chapter 7, that, that we have this war waging in our minds where, where Paul shared his personal testimony of wanting to do good, staying away from bad, but on yet occasion he, he does bad and he stays away from good. The solution is that we are filled with the Spirit. We are filled with God's precious Spirit, the same precious Spirit that raised Christ Jesus victoriously from the grave. And so being filled with the Spirit gives us everything we need to come out victorious in this war. When we are filled with the God's Spirit, it's then when we become children of God. And that comes with many blessings, removing from our old association of sin and death, uh, our former debts forgiven, and being an heir of God, a co-heir with Christ of the coming kingdom. And so we can't diminish the work of the Spirit. We cannot do that. The, the Spirit plays such an integral role in our day-to-day -day lives as Christians. That is the key to coming out victorious in this war that Craig Rochelle talks about in his book, Winning the War in Your Mind. It's the key to, to the victory of the war that we talked about in our Sunday school class this morning. It's the key to the victory of this war that we've been talking about this morning and in past weeks as well, this war that Paul talks about. The Spirit is the key. The Spirit is the solution. So I want to encourage you all this week to open your eyes to the gifts and the power of the Spirit that is empowering you as we speak. For if you have a living faith in God, as far as I understand, you have the spirit living within you. And so it's gonna be my hope and my prayer this week, and I hope it's your prayer as well, that God opens your eyes to the immense power that you have through his spirit. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Father, we thank you for the words of Paul in the first half of chapter 8. Father, we thank you that we put ourselves in trouble by committing sin in our life. And Father, I just pray that you give us everything we need to come out victorious and this war going on in our mind, this war between our flesh and our spirit. So Father, I just pray that you open our eyes as a church to your spirit, 
your spirit moving and acting within us as we speak. So Father, I just pray that we don't diminish the work of your spirit, diminish the work of the helper, and that through the empowerment of the spirit, we continue to grow closer to you, Father, and that we continue to bring in more people into your family. And so, Father, we love you. We thank you for the precious gift of your spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.